time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Financial Physician for Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. Thanks for taking time out of your day to join us for today's podcast. Got a lot to talk about today. Uh, Later in the program, we're going to talk about the anniversary of Black Monday. That was October 19th, 1987, a day that I will not soon forget. I was in the brokerage business. We were just starting AFM Investments at the time, so we're going to go over that. Uh, We're going to talk about um, bond yields and mortgages. Uh, They just keep going higher and higher and higher. Uh, We're going to talk about Biden's trip to Israel and the speech. Uh, uh, What a disaster. Uh, We're going to talk about CNN, uh, CNBC poll showing Biden's approval rating in the gutter. But the Republicans are in disarray. We still don't have the Speaker of the House. And uh, it looks like the Republicans are not taking advantage of uh, Biden's problems. Uh, what else are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about, oh, Janet Yellen says we can afford two wars, so that's nice to know. We can't even afford one. Uh, and the best part of the show is Victoria's Secret is going back to sexy models after being woke. All right, let's start off the program talking about Social Security. Many uh, uh, Americans now are getting close to 65 years old, and they're looking at retiring and they're looking at all their options for Medicare. We talked about that on the Wednesday program. If you missed that, go see the Wednesday Wednesday midweek program. We went all over the basics of Medicare. And today we're going to talk about Social Security. Social Security is extremely complicated. And I didn't even realize how complicated it was until I started preparing for this program. I mean, I know a lot about Social Security, but the nuances and the uh, things that you need to know to get it exactly right uh, is pretty difficult. So let's start off talking about when did Social Security come about? It was 1935, actually August 14th, 1935, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act. The first monthly benefit checks became payable on January 1st, 1940. And uh, Social Security is one of the largest government programs in the world. And as of, 20, as of 2023, paying out hundreds of billions of dollars each year. So let's talk about Social Security. Uh, It came about, I said, in 1935, started paying out checks in 1940. In those days, you had 13 and a half workers paying into the system for every one person that was retired. Now we have about two and a half workers for everybody that's retired. You can see the problem with that. And the problem with it is that Social Security is the largest Ponzi scheme going. And what do you mean, little Ponzi scheme? Well, a Ponzi scheme is people are paying in now for future benefits and they're paying for the people that are already retired. That's a Ponzi scheme. And as long as you have enough people working and paying into the system and not taking it out, it works. 
But when you have less people paying in the system and more people getting paid benefits like we have now, that's a problem. We're going to talk about the solvency of Social Security uh, in just a second. So what is Social Security? Well, it's an insurance program. You put money into it uh, out of your paycheck throughout your working life. Your employer matches that. And how much is it? 6.2%. So if you make $100,000 in a year, $6,200 is coming out of your paycheck, and your employer is paying $6,200 out of theirs. So that's $12,400 going into your Social Security trust fund in one year. Now, you look at it over your working life, how much money goes into it. I'm going to talk about that in a second regarding mine. And I was pretty, I was still running these numbers this morning and I was blown away by it. Uh, and maybe uh, Social Security should be an investment program and not a Ponzi scheme. We'll talk about that in a second. So what you do is you put money in, your employer matches it. If you're self-employed, you're the employer and the employee. So the net profits that you have in your business, you got to put in 12.4%. That is also another deduction, another part of FICA. Uh, when you look at your paycheck and you see deductions, you see federal income tax, you see state income tax. If you have one, you see unemployment insurance, you see FICA. And FICA is made up of the Social Security tax and the Medicare tax. So Medicare is 1.45% and um, Social Security is 6.2%. Now, one thing about Social Security, it ends after you earn a certain amount of money. Now, that wage... Uh, amount of wages you could earn goes up each year with inflation. Right now, it's about one hundred sixty-eight thousand. After that, Social Security deductions stop, but Medicare deductions don't. They never stop, and that's one of the things that people are looking at in government to try to rescue Social Security because, according to the trustees, it's going to be broke in the early thirties, uh, and we'll talk about the options for the government at that point. So uh, this money goes into the Social Security Trust Fund, out of your paycheck, your employer matches it, and over your working life, it accumulates. And then as long as you've worked 40 quarters, so you have to work 10 years, so you have to be contributing 10 years. It doesn't have to be 10 years in a row, but you have to be contributing 10 years into the system to qualify for benefits. And most of us work 10 years, unless you're a non-working spouse. We'll talk about spousal benefits a little later on. But you have to decide at retirement, as you're getting close to retirement, when to take it because there's no set age. You could take it at 62. You could take it at 63, 64, 65, 66. And we'll talk about uh, 67 as a magic age, at least for people born in 1960 or greater. And I'm going to use 67 as full retirement age because most people, that's what it is. Now, if you're already retired or you're young and you don't want to know about Social Security, you could just zip ahead on, on the podcast. And that's a great thing about a podcast. You could zip ahead if something doesn't interest you. And But if you're already retired or you're considering retiring in the next five or 10 years, I think you need to listen to not only this show, but um, past Wednesday's uh, midweek podcast, we talked about Medicare. All right, so the money goes into the trust fund and uh, it builds up and then uh, you've worked 10 years and now it's time to take the money out. Well, the first thing you want to do as you're planning your retirement is go to ssa.gov. That's Social Security Administration website. And I did it this morning. 
I have an account. You could open up an account. You put your name, social security number, your address, all that good stuff. You have a password. And now you can access your social security data. And what are you going to see here? Well, the first thing you're going to see on the front page is what your monthly benefit will be, depending on the age you start taking it. And if you take it at 62, it's going to be about 30% less than full retirement benefits, which for me and people 1960 uh, and sooner is 67. So I'm looking at these numbers and I'm saying, well, that's pretty interesting. I'm 63 and four months right now. So that's where it starts for me on my report. And if I take it now, it's $2,739 a month. Now, if I wait till my full retirement age, which is 67, I'm looking at $3,572. Now, I don't have to take it at 67. I could wait till as long as 70, and it still goes up 8% a year. Now, is it wise to wait to 70? I don't think so. For most people, I don't think so. I think full retirement age is the way to go. So at my full retirement age, I'm looking at $3,572. I was actually quite surprised. I thought it was something like 3100 3200 I guess due to cost of living increases, that number has gone up. So I could look at this and I could do my retirement planning and say, well, you know, maybe I should wait to this age, this age, or this age. It's a great resource. And uh, this is indexed for inflation. So those numbers will change as cost of living adjustments uh, come in. Now, uh, the second page tells you your earning history. Uh, and uh, it tells you the years that you worked on the left column. Then it shows you the amount you paid in Social Security tax, the income that was taxed for Social Security, which is the maximum amount up to now $168,000. Uh, and it shows uh, the actual amount of money you earned because it shows Medicare. And Medicare, you pay tax on the entire amount of your salary. So I was pretty pretty amazed at how much money I've earned over my lifetime. And you will too. You add it all up and say, where did it all go? <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's very, very interesting to see that. Now, it also tells you how much Social Security tax you've paid out of your paycheck over the course of your working life. And it also shows how much your employer put in, which is roughly the same amount. So I added these two uh, figures up, and between myself and my employer, which is my company, so it's me, basically, I put $391,946. Up to now, at 64 years and three months, into the Social Security Trust Fund. That's quite a bit of money. And I put 358897 into the Medicare Trust Fund over the course of my working life. So with Social Security, that comes to almost 10000 a year, $9,798 a year, or $816 per month. Now, I did a calculation. Now, we said before that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, meaning that Money's coming in and it's going out to other people. So people working now are paying for the people who are retired. That's the way it works. It's not like all this money that I put into Social Security is in an investment account. For me, that money's been paid to retired people over the course of my working life. It's not there. But that number is used to calculate what my benefit is. And my benefit, let's say let's say today, because we, we got these numbers up to today. My benefit, if I, re I took it today, was 2739 Now, I did a calculation. What if this money was invested? 
this $816 average per month that I've been putting in Social Security for 40 years at 5%. Very reasonable rate of return over time to get through a diversified portfolio. How much money do you think I would have? $1,251,237. But that would be a nice little nest egg to have when you retired if that was in a separate account, wouldn't it? And if you just took 5% interest on that, you left the principal there, you would be getting 62562 a year or 5213 a month versus 2758 if I just took my benefit now. You see how you're getting screwed? You're not getting any return on your money. And they have an arc, you know, their arcane calculation on how much you're going to get, but you're not getting anywhere near what you put into the system. And that's why the system is floored. Now, if I got a 7% rate of return on all those Social Security contributions, I'd have a 2,118,542. Wow. And if I took 5% of that, my income annually would be 105,927 a year or 8,827 a month. A little bit better than the $2,858 that I would get if I took Social Security now. So that would be wonderful if we could do that, but then the system would collapse because, again, there's no money in the trust fund. They're supposed to be, but it's all been borrowed by the federal government, and that's going to run out in less than 10 years. So uh, that money's gone. And maybe we should have like individual retirement accounts with this money. But again, the system would collapse. It has to continually be fed by other people who are still working. And that number is dwindling. So uh, you can get a lot of information from ssa.gov. Set up an account. You'll get all kinds of great information, explanations of what full retirement age is and so forth and so on. How to, how to apply for benefits, which, by the way, you do apply for benefits on ssa.gov. So if you're close to the year you want to start taking your benefits, you want to go there and start the application process. Now, you can go to a Social Security office and do it, uh, which is fine. Uh, If you're local here on the Jersey Shore, there's one on Catherine Boulevard in Tom's River. Uh, You just call, set up an appointment. You go down there and you'll talk to an advisor on that and they'll set you up. You could also on SSA.gov apply for Medicare. And as I said on Wednesday's podcast, uh, you have to start applying for it within a window of three months prior to uh, turning 65. Uh, Or you're going to um, possibly be penalized. So we have a lot of good information on Medicare um, on, on, on Wednesday's podcast. All right, let's look at uh, when to take it. Big question everybody has. Now, a lot of people, the majority of Americans, take their Social Security prior to full retirement age. Why is that bad? Well, two reasons. Number one, you're going to get about 30% less if you take it at 62 than you would at 67. And each year you wait, you get about 8% more in your benefit for the rest of your life. Another negative of taking Social Security prior to your full retirement age is that it limits the amount of money you could earn. You can't earn more than $21,000 and change. I forgot the exact figure. It's not important. But right around $21,000. Once you start going over that, you have to give back Social Security. So for every $2 you earn over that amount, you give back $1 in Social Security. Now, at full retirement age, it doesn't matter. You can earn all the money you want 
without having to give back Social Security. So that's another reason. Now, if you're taking Social Security prior to full retirement age, you better not work or, or you're not going to make a lot of money part time. That's fine. Uh, but you certainly don't want to make fifty thousand dollars. Now, I don't plan on retiring anytime soon, so I would not take my Social Security prior to full retirement age. That would be that would be silly. I'd be giving it all back. Now, you could do a calculation, and this is called the break-even point. And I do this for people. Uh, so right now, at 64 and three months, if I took 2,858, um, and if I waited to 67, I would get 3,572, 714 more a month for the rest of my life. But if I took it now, I would be paid $102,888 between now and 67. So now you got to figure out, where do I break even here? So you take the amount you would earn prior to full retirement age, divide it by the increased amount you would get if you waited, and you'll find out that it, in this case, it takes 144 months before I get back the 102888 I was paid between 63 and four months and 67. So I need to live 12 years to be even. That's the break-even point. At 79 years old, I'm ahead of the game by waiting to 67. Well, you know, the average uh, life expan for man, life expectancy for men is 84. So if I lived to 84, uh, I'd be ahead of the game uh, by waiting to 67. Now, 84 is the average. A lot of people live into their 90s. So they're winners by waiting. Now, again, I could wait to 70. I mean, if I take it at 67, it's 3,572. If I wait to 70, it's 4,430. But again, we have to do that break-even calculation. And I don't think it really makes sense there. But you have to keep in mind, as some people say to me, Lou, you know, my dad died, you know, you know, early, his early 70s. I have heart disease in my family or whatever. Well, I say, are you married? And they say, Yeah. Well, uh, then if you die and when you die, your wife's going to get your benefit. And if your benefit's higher than hers, certainly she's going to bump up to that for the rest of her life. So don't make the mistake. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking about just their life expectancy and they don't think about their spouse's life expectancy. Very, very important thing to do that. So I tell anybody who could possibly make it to wait to full retirement age, which for most people now is going to be 67. And again, look at those numbers on ssa.gov. Get your statement every year printed out because it changes due to cost of living adjustments um, down the line. Now, uh, what about taxation of Social Security benefits? I decided to take it now. Do I have to pay tax on it? Well, it depends. It depends on how much income you earn. That is a real big problem for me. It's always been because Social Security is after-tax money. Do you know that? You're taxed on the money that goes into FICA. You pay federal income tax on that. So that's after-tax money. Uh, so if I look at, at my Social Security that I paid out of my paycheck, uh, now the employer, it's, 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 it's pre-tax money because they get a deduction for that payment. But I don't, as the employee, and I put in 203139 That's after-tax dollars. Why should I pay tax when it comes out? I mean, it's a tax in and of itself. It's taxed, and then it's taxed when it comes out. 
And they've never changed the threshold on this. And of course, you know, everything else is indexed for inflation, but not these numbers. And when income tax was introduced in the 80s on Social Security, very few people fell into that tax. But now, because people earn more money in the way of, of pensions and IRA distributions, many, many more people are falling into the tax trap for Social Security. So how do you figure it out? Well, if you're single, take half your Social Security, add to it all your other taxable income, including tax-free municipal bond interest, if you get it. That's not tax-free for this calculation. And if you go over $25,000, Social Security starts to become taxable to you. Now, that's not a lot of money. Say you're getting $2,000 a month, Social Security. That's $24,000 a year. Half of that is twelve. That only leaves you $13,000 in other income that you could have. And you could easily, you could easily go over that with a pension, with distributions from your 401k or your IRA, dividends, capital gains, rent on property. I've been a tax accountant for 35 years. Uh, I would say most of my clients pay tax on their social security. And to me, that's an outrage. Especially when you, the, the government forces you to take distributions from your IRA account through required minimum distributions once you turn 73. Now you're forced to take taxable income out of your IRA and that mandated distribution could many times make your Social Security taxable. If you're married, uh, the number is 32000 Half your Social Security. Now you have two people getting Social Security. So if you're each getting 24000 that's 48000 Half of that is 24000 That only leaves you $8,000 that you could earn elsewhere. In interest, dividends, capital gains, pensions, and you're over the 32000 limit. And uh, as you go over that limit, either 25000 single, 32000 married, more and more of your Social Security moves from the tax-free part of the tax return in the middle of it to the right-hand side. And as much as 85% of your Social Security uh, could be taxable income. That's why when you're retired, you have to be cognizant whenever you do anything that's going to generate income. You sell a stock for a capital gain. Uh, you take a distribution out of your IRA to go buy a car. That may that may trigger the tax on Social Security. So you've got to be very, very careful about that. Uh, work with your account to see if there's anything you can do to get those taxes down. And many times there's nothing you can do about it. Unless Congress changes the law, and then they never will do that. Once Congress puts a tax into effect, it, it never comes out. Now, there was talk about moving this figure up to $100,000 instead of twenty five and thirty two. It died on the vine. And uh, it's not indexed for inflation. And it's a shame. It really is, because too many people have to file a tax return because of Social Security taxation. And uh, it just hurts their retirement. Now, I mentioned before about uh, spousal benefits. Uh, if you're a non-working spouse, for instance, my wife hasn't worked since we got married. So she doesn't have 10 years or 40 quarters worth of contributions to um, Social Security. But she's still eligible for a benefit due to my earnings. So if you have a spouse that has satisfied the 40 quarters, the 10 years of earnings, then you as a spouse are entitled to a spousal benefit. 
Now, the first thing you have to look at is if you did work uh, and you did qualify for some benefits, you got to look at what your benefit would be just based on your earnings. Uh, if it's higher than half your um, your spouse's, your working spouse's Social Security, then you just take yours. If uh, yours is less or you didn't work, then you take half of your spouse's Social Security. Now, there's a couple of rules here. There's a lot of rules and there's a lot of exceptions in Social Security. And I don't want to get in the weeds here because it is too complicated. And I could take up the entire show plus talking about the nuances of Social Security. Uh, but, um, um, but the thing to keep in mind is that if you worked and you have 10 quarters, you are eligible and you will get yours, but you will get when your spouse starts collecting, and that's another rule, the spouse has to start collecting. You can't file under your husband or your wife's earnings as a spouse and get spousal benefits unless they have filed. Very important to know that. And you have to wait until your full retirement age as the non-working spouse to get full 50% retirement benefits. So if you take it at 62 or 63, you're not going to get 50% of your spouse's Social Security. You're going to get a diminished amount. So you have to wait to 67 as a spouse to get a spousal benefit. Now, if you have a benefit from your working years that's less than half of your spousal benefit, you could take that early. And then when you turn 67, that'll be bumped up to 50% of your spouse's benefit. So what's going to happen now that uh, Social Security, the trust fund says that we're going to run out of money uh, probably in 3032. And that number seems to be going down every year due to cost of living adjustments. Um, last year, this year, 2023, they increased benefits by 8.7%. For 2024, it's 3.2%. So benefits have gone up 10% plus a year on existing beneficiaries in just two years. And just uh, keep in mind, every day, 10,000 people in America turn 65. So more and more people are entering the Social Security system and taking money out. So my guess is they're going to hit this threshold probably in 3030. And by law, that means they will only pay out 79% of benefits. So if you're getting um, whatever you're getting, and all of a sudden you're lowered 21%, what's that going to do to uh, poverty and the elderly in the United States? I mean, people are just barely getting by on their Social Security now. Imagine taking a 21% cut because the fund is out of money. Brings us back to the point of, you know, investing in your own account and doing what you want with it and having your family inherit the money that you don't spend in retirement. That's why it's so important to max out 401ks and IRAs. That's your money. But the money that you're forced to put into Social Security is not invested uh, for your benefit. So what happens when we hit that? I don't think politicians will allow Social Security to be diminished by 21%. It's not going to happen. So what are the, what's the options that they have? Well, increase the retirement age. I think that's coming, and they've been doing it in the past. You know, the full retirement age has been going up. 62 hasn't changed, but I think that will. At some point, the minimum retirement age will probably be 65, and full retirement age will probably be 70. 
That's one way to do it. Or increase the taxable wage limit. Now, I said before that once you hit 68000 plus, Social Security deductions from your paycheck and your employer stop. Now, some lawmakers are talking about, well, let's have a, a donut hole between one sixty eight and 400000 where no Social Security taxes are paid, and then over 400000 starts kicking in again. Others have said, don't have any interruption, that all wages earned is taxed for Social Security. The third thing they can do is, is, is change the tax percent. I told you that 6.2% comes out of your paycheck, 6.2% your employer pays. Maybe they up that. Maybe it becomes 8% each. But my guess is it's going to be a combination of the three. Now, changing the age, don't get all nervous if uh, you're in your 60s. Um, you'd be grandfathered in. Last thing government's going to do is uh, screw people who have done their retirement planning uh, and are pretty close to making that decision. It's easier to go back to the young people, people in their 30s and 40s, and say, you know what, we're going to increase your retirement age because they won't be as upset because it's years down the road. So if you have any questions regarding Social Security, uh, there's lots, lots of YouTube videos, lots of um, sources on the Internet, or you can go down to Social Security uh, yourself um, and talk to them about your options. Now, they're not going to tell you what to do, but they're just going to explain your options to you uh, down the line. So Social Security is a very important uh, retiree pension program, if you will, for people who don't have pensions. Uh, for many Americans, it's their sole source of income in retirement. Uh, it's important that the program stays solvent. And it's important that you know your options and that you make the decisions as you're entering retirement the right way. And you could talk to a, a certified financial planner or an accountant or the Social Security Administration themselves. But they're not, they're not going to give you the advice that an accountant or social, um, certified financial planner will be. So again, if you missed the Medicare uh, segment we did, go to uh, Wednesday's podcast, uh, share this podcast with people that you know are getting close to retirement age, and uh, make sure that you make the right decisions on Social Security. All right, let's take a quick break. My name is Lou Skatigna. Don't go away. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin and Company. Member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through our advisors. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, top quality work at the most affordable rates. On The Financial Physician, we talk money, markets, and politics, and 
anything that affects your life. We get together twice a week. We have our main podcast Sunday morning, which you're listening to now. I have it up by 9 a.m., usually 7 a.m. Sunday morning, and we do our midweek podcast on Wednesday up by 4 o'clock. Don't miss the midweek podcast. Um, It's not as long as the Sunday podcast, but we cover different topics than we do here on Sunday. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember the email address, lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Love your emails. Return. I I answer each and every one, especially if I find it. (laughs) If I haven't responded to you, it's not because I'm ignoring you. It's because I just, I missed it or it's in my junk or just send it again. Put a very catchy subject line on and I'll be more than happy to respond. If you have something I could help you with, um, a tax question or a personal finance question, or if you want me to cover a topic on a show, I get a lot of the topics from you guys. Lou, would you cover this? Lou, would you cover that? So uh, it's your show. So if you want me to cover a subject, just email me and I will make sure that we do cover it here on the Financial Physician. Again, Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. And thanks for sharing the podcast. The podcast has grown each and every week. We're the number one financial podcast on Podomatic. Uh, We're doing uh, really, really good on other platforms as well. And just I appreciate you sharing the show. Uh, We talk about things uh, that you're not going to hear elsewhere on any other financial show, uh, any other political show. Uh, I'm not afraid to uh, talk about subjects that are sensitive these days. Uh, and, uh, that's why I'm glad I'm not on the radio anymore. Uh, they were getting a little nervous with me, uh, given the woke times that we live in. Uh, and I'm glad that I made the decision to, uh, to leave WOBM and just do the podcast. Cause I have no, I only have to answer to myself and you guys. Uh, and, uh, you guys seem to like, uh, what we cover here on the financial physician. This week marked the 36th anniversary of Black Monday. The stock market crashed of October 19th, 1987. I can't believe 36 years have gone by since then. I remember it vividly because, A, I was in the business already four years. Uh, and I witnessed the, the major bull market that led up to the 1987 Black Monday crash. Uh, also at that time, me and my partner Martin uh, were setting up AFM Investments. So here we are, two 27-year-old guys trying to go off on their own in the brokerage business, and we have the worst crash in history. And I'm going to explain it was the worst one-day crash in history. Even 1929 did even equal it, not even by far. And we haven't seen anything like it since. So I remember it vividly, uh, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about what led up to the crash, what happened during the crash. And can it happen again? And what changes were made in markets in response to it? So Black Monday, as it's referenced today, is what took place on October 19th, which was a Monday in 1987 and in October. Now, so, and it seems like October always seems to be the month for crashes. Remember the the great crash in 1929 was in October. The crash in 87 was in October. Uh, October in 2008 was a, a crash as well. Uh, so I don't know what it is with October. Maybe it's because of Halloween. It's spooky. The markets get really spooked in October. Um, but let's talk about the crash, what happened, what led up to it. Uh, from August in 1982, when the, when the country was coming out of the recession, now to give you a little bit of history update, 
1980 is when we had that peak recession, uh, peak inflation, like we're experiencing right now. It was 1980. Paul Volcker raised interest rates to 18 percent, killed inflation, killed the economy. We went through a really nasty recession uh, in the first two years of Ronald Reagan's administration. And then the economy came out and started to grow. Employment started to pick up. And we had a very, very great uh, economic uh, recovery uh, from that uh, very deep recession caused by the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve, I talk about it all the time, the power they have over all of us is just so great. And we'll talk about what's going on with them now a little later in the program. But uh, they caused this great recession. Paul Volcker, and you got to give the guy credit. I mean, he did a very unpopular thing, politically especially. And he uh, raised interest rates to 18%. Can you imagine if this Federal Reserve raised interest rates to 18%? What havoc that would cause in the economy? And it would cause much more havoc than Paul Volcker did because we have 100 times more debt (laughs) than we did then. Uh, So when you raise interest rates on a population, a government, uh, cities and municipalities that are so indebted, it causes what we're seeing now, which is total dislocation in uh, world markets and world economies. So th- that's not going to happen. We're at 3%, 3, 3 and a quarter. Uh, we're not going to get much further than this, trust me, and we'll talk about it now. Is the Fed going to pivot? You know, some things came out on Friday that may indicate that the Fed is, is starting to get scared. But back then, Paul Volcker raised interest rates. We had a nasty recession. We came out of it. Inflation was killed. And uh, we had a great economic period between uh, 1982 to 1987. As a matter of fact, the Dow Jones Industrial Average during that period, and I remember it well because I was a fledgling broker at that time, went from 776 to uh, uh, 2722 in August of 1987. Um, That's a huge move, obviously, in just five years. As a matter of fact, in, in, in 1987, in August, year to date, the Dow was up 69% through the summer of 1987. I remember it because I was working for a brokerage firm in Princeton as I was planning on opening up AFM Investments. We were doing all the planning. And in that summer, I just every day was a new record on the stock market. It was so baffling. Because at that time, the economy wasn't doing that great. Our trade deficit was growing. Our debt was starting to grow. And every day was a record. I mean, think about it. Up 69% in one year. It wasn't even one year. It was in eight months. And I was getting very nervous because this is not normal. And when things are not normal, they go up too fast. Uh, The decline or correction is very hard, very dramatic. And I knew it was coming. I didn't know when. I knew it was coming. I was four years in a business. What did I know? I didn't know nothing, but I, I knew people were talking. I was listening to financial radio every day when I was driving back and forth uh, to Princeton. And uh, and they were all talking about how this was unsustainable. And sure enough, it wasn't sustainable. So on... Um, Leading up to Black Monday, we started seeing declines in the market in September. 
and into October before the crash happened. And this is typical of, of crashes. Crashes don't happen out of the blue. The market goes down significantly prior to a crash. The crash is usually the crescendo of other little quakes that were happening prior to it, that lead up to it, the cracks in the market, if you will, before the big crack happens. And uh, the week before, uh, we started seeing our trade deficit go up. The dollar started to fall, uh, and um, and uh, there was some talk in Congress about uh, reducing the tax benefits associated with mergers and acquisitions. And that was all the rage in 87. Companies were being taken over through leveraged buyouts and junk bonds. And if you remember Michael Milken and all that stuff that was going on. So Congress was trying to rein that in and make it more difficult for takeovers. That was negative on the market. But the week before this Black Monday, on October 14th, it was a Wednesday before Black Monday, the United States House Committee on Ways and Means introduced the tax bill that would reduce the tax benefits associated with financing mergers and acquisitions. And at the time, you know, you didn't really think that was a real big deal, but it was it was pretty big because that was driving the markets at the time. Um, and also unexpected high trade deficit numbers started to come out. And uh, that came out on October 14th, had a negative impact on the value of the U.S. dollar. And what we started seeing was interest rates starting to go up in the bond market. Kind of like what we're seeing now. Well, think about some of the comparisons to what's going on today. So on that day, Wednesday, October 14th, the Dow dropped by 95 and a half points. Doesn't sound like a lot today, uh, but when you have a 2,500 Dow, that's, that's a lot. It was 3.81%. Now today we see drops like that quite often, especially lately, right? That wasn't the big one, of course. It fell another 57 and a half points or 2.39% the next day, Thursday. And now the market was down about 12% from the all-time high that was hit on August 25th. On Friday, October 16th, I remember this day very well. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 108 points, 4.6% on record volume. Now, all the pundits were talking about maybe this is the capitulation, uh, maybe this market decline is over. Uh, and um, we were starting to see declines also in, in, in markets all around the world at the same time. Now, people were just saying, this is a normal correction. Look, you had a market go up 60-something percent in a very short amount of time. Uh, correction was overdue, and now this is the correction we've been waiting for, and it's healthy for the markets. So the markets were closed, obviously, for the weekend, but we started seeing computer models starting to get ready to sell more and more stock. And we'll talk about computers and what they did. Um, and there was indications, rumors around Wall Street that there was going to be a big sell-off Monday. Mutual funds were starting to see redemptions. People were calling up their mutual fund companies. Uh, you didn't go online to do it then. Uh, now it's even easier because you go online and sell. You know, But, but people were calling uh, mutual fund companies over the weekend and putting in sell orders. So, you know, these mutual fund companies, they knew over the weekend that they had to sell because, look, when a mutual fund gets redemptions, they have to sell securities to come up with the cash to pay back the shareholders, right? 
So everybody knew that come Monday, uh, there was going to be a large sell situation, especially in the morning. And overnight, we started seeing uh, 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 crashes in overseas markets. It started in Hong Kong. Then it spread to Europe. And I remember before the market opened, um, I'm watching what was uh, the only financial news network at the time. I think it was FNN uh, Financial News Network, which morphed into CNBC later on. Uh, that they were talking before the market opened that, you know, futures were down a lot. And that many stocks may not even open on time because there was such huge selling balances, so much selling. Now, back in the day, you know, there was something called specialist on the New York Stock Exchange. And what specialists were were market makers. There was a specialist in IBM stock. There was a specialist in General Motors stock. So when you wanted to buy or sell stock and you got an order from your brokerage firm and you're on the floor as a floor trader. Now, my father-in-law was a floor trader for Goldman Sachs for most of his career. So I know how this works. He would get an order from upstairs to sell 100,000 shares of IBM, and he'd walk over to the specialist booth that dealt with IBM, and he'd announce his order to the specialist. And then the specialist would try to pair that off with the buyer, or he'd take it in himself to make a smooth market. But the specialists were getting so overwhelmed with sell orders that they couldn't take it in themselves, otherwise they'd go bankrupt. And there was no buyers to buy. So those order imbalances were so large that 95 stocks in the S&P 500 index opened late. And 11 stocks in the, in, of the 30 Dow Jones stocks opened late. But the futures market opened on time with heavy selling. And when futures go down, it pushes down stocks. We're not getting too complicated. But the bottom line, on Black Monday, the Dow fell 508 points which was 22.6%. Could you imagine in one day, today, tomorrow tomorrow is Monday. What if we had another Black Monday tomorrow and the market dropped 22%? You know how much that is? That's almost 7,000 points in one day. Now, back in the day, nobody had 401ks and stuff like that, you know, with, with hundreds of thousands of dollars in it. Imagine having a 401k with significant amount of money in it. Now, everybody was in the stock market because the stock market was the rage since 1982, and especially in 1987. Everybody was dancing in August. You got a 67% increase, whatever it was, for the year. Everybody was partying. Everybody was overexposed to stocks. And when the music stopped, people were getting killed. And uh, the tar troubling part about this largest one-day percentage drop in history, um, a, a lot of the selling was in the last 90 minutes of trading. And a lot of uh, stocks were just halted uh, because they just couldn't, couldn't trade. There was no bids. And finally, a relief, if you want to call it that, set in when the market finally closed. And people said, what is this? I mean, we got 22% decline. And think about it. You know, we were down almost 10% the week before. So you're talking about a 32% decline in the market in a week. And everybody wondered what this portended. And now I, I didn't sleep very well that night. 
And another thing, too, you know, NASDAQ, the over-the-counter stocks, the way you traded them, now it's all computerized. You just put a sell order in the computer and it zips through and it gets executed. Back in those days, you had to call a market maker similar to a specialist. A market maker was a brokerage firm that made a market in the stock. And they were obligated to honor their bid or offer if you're buying or, or, or bid if you're selling. But these market makers, the way you did the trade, you called up their trade desk. Well, you call up a trade desk, nobody would answer the phone. Imagine trying to sell a position out and nobody answers the phone on the market maker side. You can't sell. As you're watching your position drop and drop and drop, you cannot sell. Another thing that precipitated this was something called program trading. Program trading was relatively new in 1987. What would happen is the computers would sell automatically when the market dropped a certain percent, which just caused more selling, which caused the computers to sell even more, and it fed on itself. There was something also called portfolio insurance, which is similar to that. When you had a position in a portfolio that dropped X percent, it was automatically sold. So when you have all this going on in mass, that's how you had a crash. There was no protections built in. Now, there was rumors going around that there was going to be collapse of securities firms across the board. There was no liquidity. Margin calls were going out where people who were on margin, which most people were at that time. Why not? The market's going up. Borrow as much money as you can, right? Well, when the market drops, you got to put up more money or you're forced to sell. So that forced selling also exacerbated the decline. And there was a real risk that, that big institutions were going to fail. And that the entire financial system and the real economy was going to crash. Um, and the real worry was Tuesday morning, there was a liquidity problem. Firms couldn't come up with cash to pay other firms. And it was a, a real risk of Tuesday being worse than Monday as far as the downturn was. And then the Federal Reserve came to the rescue. And the Federal Reserve came out before the market opened and and came out and said, I guess, I think this was Alan Greenspan. He said, the Federal Reserve, consistent with its responsibilities as the nation's central bank, affirmed today its readiness to serve as a source of liquidity to support the economic and financial system. I mean, this was a pretty extraordinary announcement at the time. And it had a calming effect on the markets. And because it was a demand for liquidity and the Fed comes out, we'll supply all the liquidity that is necessary. Sounds a lot like what the Bank of England just did a couple of weeks ago, right? When their bonds were crashing and, and the pension system, which is highly leveraged to the bond market, uh, was at risk of uh, becoming insolvent. The Bank of England came out and said, we'll provide liquidity into the bond market. We'll do quantitative easing. We'll buy as many bonds as necessary to support the system. What's the exact same thing that the Federal Reserve did on October 20th, the morning after. And it worked. Uh, on October 20th, the Fed injected $17 billion into the banking system. And that was equal to, at the time, 25% of bank reserve balances and 7% of the monetary base of the entire nation. 
So that was a huge now 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 today 17 billion is a drop in the bucket, you know, but at that time in 1987 17 billion was a lot of money. And the Fed continued providing liquidity to the market for for several weeks thereafter. And uh because they announced this prior to the market open on Tuesday the 20th, the crash was over. And it was a, a relatively brief crash, you know, when you look back on it. The market recovered uh, within six months. And we did not have a depression or even a severe recession in 1983. Uh, So, I mean, the Fed was very successful in rescuing the economy, the market, the financial system. Uh, And then the next real, real big crash we had was 2008, right? That did usher in a long-term recession, right? The Great Recession, right? Because it was a different makeup. The reason why was totally different. When we look back, the crash of 1987 was just due to overvaluations. The market went up too quick, too fast. People all ran to take profits at the same time when things started going down. We had a declining dollar, but we had uh, rising interest rates. Uh, but the economy itself was pretty good. Not the same uh, uh, that happened in 2008 and not the same as our economy today, which has totally different dynamics. Now, it was the biggest decline in history uh, in 1929. The crash in 1929, the worst day was um, down 12 percent, roughly half of what happened on Black Monday. So it was truly a historic day. In uh, world financial markets. And again, I, I remember it very vividly. So can it happen again? That's the question. And the answer is no. It cannot happen again. Why can't it happen again? Well, because there's something now that was instituted after the crash of 1987, and that's called circuit breakers. What's a circuit breaker? Think about a circuit breaker for electric, right? It gets gets overloaded. It trips and it stops. Well, that's what a circuit breaker is in the stock market. When the market goes down a certain amount, or up actually, um, it triggers a circuit breaker. It, it triggers a stop in trading. And is that good or bad? Uh, well, um, a lot of debate is out on that. And this is the way it works. Um, it changes periodically. Uh, there's three levels of circuit breakers. If the market drops 7%, the market closes for 15 minutes. Just no trading. The market just stops. And the theory is, you know, that 15 minutes are going to let cooler heads prevail. But it really doesn't. It makes people panic because now they can't do anything for 15 minutes. And as soon as it opens up again, many times it just goes down more. Then if you hit 13% down, it closes for 15 minutes again. Again, does it work? I don't think so. And then when you hit 20% down in a day, the market closes for the day. So uh, you can have a 20% down day. You can't have a 22.6% down day like we did at the Great Crash of 1987. Uh, But you can't have 20%. Now, the last time we saw these circuit breakers kicked in was the COVID crash, if you recall. 
market market stopped trading uh, two or three times in the day that the market crashed uh, with the COVID shutdown. So the question is, do they work? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, because uh, I know in the COVID crash, you know, once the market opened up again, it just went down further. And uh, traders don't like uh, not to have the ability to trade. There's also um, circuit breakers for individual stocks. If individual stocks move too much, uh, they have circuit breakers there as well. I mean, at the end of the week, your 401k is still down 22%. So it's more like a, a slow motion crash. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You're still losing money. You're just losing it slower. Now, the reason I wanted to include this topic in today's program is not because of the anniversary. It's just the 36th anniversary. Nothing special about it. Uh, but I think there's a lot of similarities in the markets today uh, that we saw in 1987. And I'm looking at the chart of the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, uh, they look eerily similar uh, to what the charts look like prior to the big crash. Crashes don't happen overnight. The market starts to go down, usually a month or so before, maybe even longer. And it starts grinding down. You have uh, lower highs, and every time it looks like the market's going to rally, it turns the other way. And then ultimately, it falls off a cliff. Something triggers it, could be a worldwide event, could be a bank failure, could be a hedge fund, could be anything. But right now, we're seeing a lot of similar things. We're seeing uh, a falling dollar. We're seeing um, rising interest rates. And we're seeing uh, what I think is going to be next year, an epic real estate crash, both in housing and commercial real estate. Then you add to it all these conflicts around the world, many of them that could turn into World War III, and you have a mix uh, or at least a potential of a financial storm. And you better make sure that you're prepared for it and your portfolio is right, your 401k is right, your, your market exposure is correct. Because this one, I think, that's coming, maybe not in one day, is going to be a hor- horrific crash in the stock market. And we've positioned our clients, you know, we have very little stock market exposure. Uh, I've done it in my own portfolio, and I think you should do it in yours. So you could add another quote-unquote side effect or injury uh, from uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, Seizures and convulsions met the statistical threshold for a signal in children aged 2 to 4 following receipt of a Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine and children aged 2 to 5 following receipt of a Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. So what is a safety signal? They're getting reports, health officials, uh, that kids are getting seizures three or four days after getting the shot. Now, a signal means that it has to be further researched to see if there's a link between the two, but... Duh, of course there is. So uh, young kids who shouldn't be getting this shot in the first place. I can't believe the FDA is telling parents to, to, to inject their kids with an experimental shot that they don't need. It's just unbelievable. What's more of an unbelievable is parents are doing it, or at least we're doing it. 
So we had that last week. We talked about oh, vaginal vaginal bleeding for women who are past menopause, uh, myocarditis, periocarditis, seizures, strokes, uh, blood clots. Uh, who would want to take this? There's enough information out now, even though the mainstream media is trying to suppress it. Uh, that enough people know enough from their own families and friends the things that are happening that they don't want to take it. I I read something the other day. It said only two percent of Americans plan on taking the the new vaccine that's out, and those are two percent of the people that are just so stupid they don't know any better, or they're older and they have pre existing conditions and they rather take the risk of the of the shot and they're getting COVID. Uh, I don't know, but it looks like the COVID gravy train is over for Pfizer and Moderna. Because uh, people don't want their vaccine anymore. And we're seeing uh, vaccine makers, we're seeing pharmacy chains, we're seeing uh, makers of, of home tests. And genu- genuinely, anybody who is making money off of COVID, uh, now uh, they're paying the price because the COVID bubble's over. They're seeing their businesses suffer, or even going belly up. The biggest loser from our return to common sense, is Pfizer, who was the major beneficiary of the COVID pandemic, right? They made billions. Well, the company came out last week and said that uh, they're dramatically reducing its annual sales outlook by $9 billion. That's not a little bit of money. That's a lot of money. Because people don't want the vaccines. They don't want the Paxlovid. Moderna also said that uh, they're seeing demand drop. You know, Pfizer shares are down 35% this year. And Moderna shares shares, uh, are down 49%. That's a good thing. I love it. I love to see these shares go down. I hope they go bankrupt. And I read an article this week where somebody was postulating that Pfizer may go bankrupt. Because of people suing the company for injuries and deaths. Anybody who had an adverse effect from this or knows somebody who died, any family member, should be suing Pfizer. And there will be a class action lawsuit against them. Now, people say, well, they're protected because of uh, the emergency use authorization, but they're not protected from fraud. If they knew through their testing these side effects and they went forward anyway, without disclosing them, then they are liable. And I wouldn't touch uh, Pfizer stock with a 10-foot pole, or Moderna stock for that matter. So uh, people have had it with COVID, where, you you know, restaurants are bustling, people going everywhere. Doesn't seem that people even care about it anymore. You're seeing less and less masks, or you still see them. And uh, I'd love, I'd love, Nothing better to, to see these vaccine manufacturers, and I use the word vaccine loosely, uh, go belly up. In the past, I've been uh, talking about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, uh, the true globalist and uh, diabolical uh, uh, Dr. Evil, if you will. He's talking about, you know, you'll own nothing, you'll be happy. That we need to start eating insects to save the planet. Uh, and a lot of people scoffed at that, that, you know, nobody's going to be eating insects, right? 
Well, listen to this headline. Tyson Foods, giant food maker, is buying a stake in insect protein company Protix BV. The two companies will collaborate to establish a manufacturing facility in the U.S. to produce bug-based meal and oil. Now, they say here, it's typically used in fish food and dog food. Yeah, how long is it going to be in your food and my food? Uh, They want you to eat bugs. They don't want you to eat mammals that are walking around farting and destroying the atmosphere and killing the planet. I know people fart more than cows do, so do we have to get rid of them too? So, uh, yeah, big food manufacturers now getting involved in the insect business and how long before that's going to be in all our food. And, of course, corporate media has been trying to convince the masses that this is good for you. In uh, Europe, an additive that's made out of powdered crickets has made its way into pizza, pasta, and cereals. So Tyson's foray into bug production for animal food, it's an ominous sign. And it's an ominous sign that this meat giant, Tyson Foods, is also planting edible insects for human consumption. I ain't eating it. I ain't eating bugs. The question is, will we know it? You know, we'll just be as an additive and they'll name it something and you won't even know it is bugs. Now, having said all that, bugs are probably not bad for you. I mean, it's pure protein. I mean, we get skeeved out thinking about eating bugs. Uh, But people eat bugs all around the world. Grasshoppers, locusts, crickets, even ants some people eat. So I'm not questioning uh, the potential nutritional value of bugs. I mean, if we eat, I don't know, a chicken, is that better than eating a cricket? I don't know. It's probably worse for you health-wise. You know, God knows how these uh, dirty birds, as they're called, uh, are handled in these mass processing centers. Uh, Maybe it would be better for us to eat a bug. Maybe there'll be restaurants, kind of like vegetarian restaurants that uh, only serve bugs and insects. Oh, man. We're living in a science fiction movie. I feel like we're living in Soylent Green. If anybody remembers Soylent Green... They were developing this food and people were eating it. And as it turns out, at the end of the movie, you find out that it's, it's actually people. It's dead bodies being recycled into food. Well, we'll probably have a lot of dead bodies to do that with uh, as these wars continue to progress and we move closer and closer to World War III. There'll be plenty of bodies to turn into food. I think I'll stick with the bugs. In a 60 Minutes interview uh, last weekend... Host Scott Pelley asked uh, Joe Biden, are the wars in Israel and Ukraine more than the United States can take on at the same time? And the president answered, we can take care of both of these and still maintain our overall international defense. We have the capacity to do this and we have an obligation to. Now, in a Sky News interview uh, last Monday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gave a similar answer when asked whether the U.S. can afford to fund another war at this time. It was on CNBC this week, and he said, 
This is the most threatening and challenging geopolitical environment that I've ever seen. At the same time, the US is in its weakest fiscal position since World War II, with debt to GDP at 122%. Can, can America, can the West, afford another war at this time? I, I think the answer is absolutely. Um, America can certainly afford to stand with Israel and to support Israel's military needs. And we also can and must support Ukraine in its struggle against Russia. And look, the American economy is doing extremely well. No, Janet Yellen, you clueless old grandma. You should be sitting on a sofa somewhere watching Wheel of Fortune. She knows nothing what she's talking about. No, the United States can't afford two wars. We can't afford one war. We can't even afford to pay our bills, the interest on our debt. The economy is on a precipice of collapse. As I said earlier, we're going to see a horrific real estate crash next year. Commercial real estate and housing. Interest rates are going to stay high because nobody wants our bonds. The world is running away from the dollar. So inflation is going to be with us for some time. The average family is just struggling to put food on the table. And when people start losing their jobs, when we enter recession, which is inevitable in 2024, uh, it's going to get worse here. So don't come out and tell everybody that we could no problem afford two wars. Both of them may be world wars or part of the same world war. Do you know what it takes to fight a war like that? And what happens if you know an aircraft carriers take it out? Or a battleship? Obviously, the war would escalate at that point, but what about the loss of, of money and power that would come? I mean, war is horrific. We haven't fought a war that we, we've taken it in the chin. Yeah, we had 9-11. That was the closest thing we came to experiencing real warfare since World War II. Well, I should say the Vietnam War. I'm not begrudging those who were in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I'm talking about hitting home where just mass casualties at one point. That's what happens in world wars. Go back in history, watch some old videos of World War II. Look at the devastation in Europe. And we were fortunate because we didn't fight it on our soil, but due to Biden opening up the freaking border, God knows how many terror cells are here from what countries. And we're gonna, it's going to hit here. It is. Things are going to get pretty horrific. But you have these idiots that come out, Biden and Yellen, to say, oh, yeah, we have no problem keeping our military strong by fighting two world wars. And then what happens when China gets into it with Taiwan? Then what? We can't even afford to pay our bills. And here we are sending $100 million to Hamas, $6 billion to Iran. So far, $76 billion, they say, to Ukraine, and now he wants another $90 billion. No, we can't afford that. That's money that should be going into infrastructure, should be going into the homeless, should be going into our own defense re- replenishment, because we've given all our ammo and weapons to Ukraine, and then Russia destroys it immediately. God knows how much graft is happening in Ukraine, how much kickbacks to the United States of all these billions of dollars that are unaccountable. A lot of people are getting rich off America, off of warfare. Not to mention the military-industrial complex. 
Best stocks to own now are defense stocks. The business is real good. You know, uh, who was it? Uh, I think it was Eisenhower. said, beware the military-industrial complex because they want war. War is very profitable. Going back thousands of years, many people profited on war. The suppliers of shields, of helmets, of swords back in the day. And now the suppliers of cruise missiles, F-16s, and other implements of warfare. And this stuff doesn't come cheap. So I tell you, they're taking us down a path. There is no talk of peace by the West. None. Now, with the Israeli situation, should we be dealing with peace right now? No, probably not. Israel has to get its pound of flesh. And they will. But at some point here, this has to be de-escalated. Same is true in Ukraine. Because, no, we can't afford it financially. And we can't afford the loss of life, the potential loss of life, not only overseas, but here in the United States. I tell you, we're, we're, we're led by fools. Instead of just sending money after money after money to Israel, we send them $4 billion a year as it is for defense. Now we're going to send them billions more. And Ukraine, you know, it's a black hole, as I said before. How about just, you know, laying out a coherent strategy? to solve the problems that are going on now and to get some kind of peace. That's what we really need. But Biden comes out when asked about it, you know, the war and other people will get involved in it. You know, he has one word answers as deterrence. There's limited fighting already on the northern Israeli border. And I wonder what is your message to Hezbollah and its backer, Iran? Don't. Don't, don't, don't. Don't come across the border. Don't escalate this war. That's right. <laughs> you know, it must be nice, really, to have uh, such a friendly press. A little night nurse there to help clean up the mess that he makes and finishes his sentence for him. So Biden, you know, pretends that, you know, the U.S. has Israel's back. Uh, but let, let, let's look at some of the things recently that Biden and his administration have done, right? Just as this war started, right, they freed up $6 billion in money for Iran. This is the same Iran who is supporting Hamas with weapons, with money, and has been for a long time. But of course, the administration, they could straight out cancel it right now because it's still in Qatar or Qatar, whatever they call it. And, uh, but they won't. They just say not a dime is left there yet. Well, why not just cancel the whole thing? I mean, it's not going to be long before Israel is going to be at war with Iran or Hezbollah, a proxy war, or us directly with them. Why would we even consider giving them $6 billion to hell with them? But the administration won't do it. They weasel around wording that, well, you know, this is from humanitarian aid. Well, if they, we give them $6 billion for humanitarian aid... That frees up $6 billion for weapons for Hamas and Hezbollah. It's ridiculous, their thinking. And, you know, Republicans are out there calling, just cancel it. But this administration doesn't want to do it. What else did the administration do this week that's counter to uh, having Israel's back? Well, while he is in Jerusalem, he announces 
that were given $100 million in aid to the Palestinians in Gaza. How much of that money do you think is actually going to go to humanitarian aid? It's all going to Hamas. They control everything there. It's insane. Absolute insanity. And then how about this? Nice headline here. Biden about to hand Iran huge victory by letting missile sanctions expire. So the United Nations embargo against Iran's access to uh, missile and drone markets expires on Wednesday. That was a couple days ago. Providing Iran ally Hamas with major advantage over Israel unless halted by U.S. and European allies. Um, So we could stop this. European allies can stop it in the United Nations. Loss of sanctions will be a huge victory for Tehran, according to Richard Goldberg, Trump administration director of countering Iranian weapons of mass destruction of the National Security Council. Ongoing inaction by the Biden administration to continue the sanctions is an unforgivable policy choice at the moment, according to Goldberg, who currently is a senior advisor for the Foundation Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Likening the current Biden administration policies to appeasement, Goldberg said, we can stop it from expiring. We could send a letter to the United Nations Security Council and trigger snapback sanctions. But Biden doesn't want to do it. So uh, here we go. Now they could have access to missiles, drones, $6 billion. By the way, the $6 billion is ransom money. For five hostages. I mean, I don't like to see any Americans' life in danger, but whose life is worth a billion plus dollars? And all it does is encourage other countries and Iran itself to continue to take hostages. They know we'll pay up. Remember we gave the worst terrorists in exchange for like one or two of our guys? We released six of the top terrorists in Gitmo, if you remember. So three things that are being done right now to help the terrorists and help the enemies of Israel. Now, of course, Trump came out when uh, asked about um, the $100 million. He was at his case in New York. And uh, someone asked him about it after he left uh, the courtroom. Biden is sending $100 million to the Palestinians? Yes, Mr. President. Nobody was asking that question. What do you think about that monetary? I think right now it's totally inappropriate. It's so inappropriate to be doing that right now. He's over in Israel and he's giving money to the Palestinians. Uh, I think it's very inappropriate. Thank you very much. Democratic presidents have screwed up the Middle East going back 40 years. And on the five this week, uh, Greg Gutfeld laid out the disastrous nature of our previous Democratic presidents when it comes to the Middle East. The truth is the Middle East always exposes the naivete of past Democratic presidents. 
Back in 79, President Jimmy Carter took American credibility into Bud Light territory when Iran seized 52 American diplomats. It took over a year for America to respond, which we finally did by electing Ronald Reagan. Barack Obama was convinced he could make a difference. He thought Iran could be brought around from a fascist theocracy to a friendly modern nation if we could just get that pesky nuclear deal done. Biden offers $6 billion to Iran in exchange for American hostages. That Hamas seizes more American hostages right afterward. Like stairs, speed bumps, and sandbags. Biden never saw it coming. Not a single U.S. dollar should go to Hamas-controlled Gaza until all the hostages, including especially Americans, are safely released. I mean, how's that for maybe, you know, paying some ransom, but at least getting something for it? And then Joe Biden, you know, in the press conference, he's given advice to terrorists. This is what he said, quote, I'm not suggesting that Hamas deliberately did it. It's that old thing, got to learn how to shoot straight. And he's talking about the hospital bombing, which, by the way, it's becoming clear. It's not a bombing of the hospital at all. It was an errant rocket followed by fired by the Gazans, whatever faction you want to talk about, whether it's Hamas or Islamic, whatever, uh, jihad. It broke apart, fell into the parking lot, exploded, started a fire in a number of cars. The building's intact. There's no crater. The whole Muslim world's up in uh, outrage including almost every university in America and some of our congresspeople about Israel, Israel's horrible attack on civilians that never even happened. But he goes ahead and says, well, you know, it's Hamas who did it. I'm not suggesting that they deliberately did it. It's that old thing. Got to learn how to shoot straight. It's bad enough that uh, Biden freed up $6 billion for Iran. And now he's greenlining another hundred million more this morning. And he's giving advice to terrorists that, well, you know, if you're going to shoot at, at uh, rockets at Israel, you know, make sure you do it straight. It's unbelievable. Well, how about this? Uh, Terror-loving extremist has key job at U.S. Homeland Security. What a surprise. Doesn't surprise me in the least with this administration. Uh, a key member of the federal bureaucracy whose government employees who are supposed to fulfill the ideals of the American dream is a pro-Hamas extremist who bashes Israel and promotes its destruction to the point of posting online images of terrorists parachuting in, and she does this regularly. So the U.S. Immigration Enforcement Agency hired Nujia Ali, a former spokeswoman for the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And then the Democrat, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, gave her the authority to decide who can come into America as an immigrant or, quote-unquote, asylum seeker. And her position has not discouraged her from posting uh, outrageous stuff. Pictures of uh, Hamas terrorists parachuting in with guns. Then she writes, F Israel and any Jew who supports Israel on her social media. So she worked in 2016 and 2017 for the Palestinian delegation to the U.S., uh, which confirms online it was a PLO office in D.C. But she moved into other work when that office was expelled from the country by President Trump. And then she secured employment as an asylum officer 
for the Department of Homeland Security. And she applies immigration laws and regulations. Then in January, she was promoted. She was made adjudication officer for the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service. The Wally's job at DHS, including vetting people to make sure they're not a threat to the country before letting them in, it's not clear that anyone from the agency vetted her. Her primary allegiance is to the Palestinians, not the United States. All you have to do is read her social media profiles. It's unbelievable. This government, everything they do is anti-American. It's for the destruction of America. How should somebody like that, not an American, have that job? It's outrageous. But it's par for the course with the Biden administration. On Wednesday's podcast, I brought up how rigged elections uh, have consequences. And in this past rigged election, um, the consequences are human lives in the hundreds of thousands. Now, it may turn out to be millions by the time this is over. You think the Ukrainian Russian would have went into Ukraine with Trump as president? Do you think Iran would have uh, told Hamas to go in and invade Israel if Trump was president. No, they know that we have a weak president, weak leadership, sympathetic to evil in the world. And they know it. And you saw Biden on the world stage with Netanyahu reading, mumbling off cards that he was reading such a profound situation, uh, and uh, he has to read from cards. He can't even speak off the cuff. He seemed to fall asleep a couple of times, stumbled on his words, and um, it was just an embarrassment. And that's emboldened people to go into other countries, to start wars. And as I was saying, how many people died in Ukraine because Trump isn't president? How many people are going to die in the Middle East because Trump isn't president? How many people are dying due through human trafficking, fentanyl coming through our border? How many terrorists are coming through our border and sleeper cells? How many Americans are going to die because of that? Boy, what a difference an election makes and what a difference a rigged election makes. All right, after the break, we're going to talk about dismal poll numbers that came out of CNBC this week regarding Biden's performance. But at the same time, the Republicans are just self-destructing, as they usually do. We still don't have a Speaker of the House. We'll discuss that on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Are you currently retired or planning to retire in the next five years? Hey, Lou Scatigna here, certified financial planner, personal finance author, president of AFM Investments. Why not join me for a comprehensive financial review at my downtown Tom's River office? Banks are paying virtually nothing, and the stock market has become a risky casino. But there are ways to achieve reasonable returns without taking on big risks. Let me show you how. During our meeting, I will determine your net worth, find ways to maximize your income, and minimize your taxes. I'll review your estate plan and discuss strategies to protect your estate from nursing home costs. Managing your finances is more complicated than ever, but you don't have to go it alone. So make your no-obligation appointment today by calling 732-905-8100. That's 732-905-8100. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin & Company, member FINRA and SIPC. Registered advisory services through Argentus Advisors. 
Do you have a home to sell? Do you need to buy a home? Or maybe you would like to consider a career in real estate? Well, you need to contact my brother, Mark Skatigna. He's the broker manager of Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty on Route 70 in Manchester. Mark has helped so many of my clients with either the sale of their home or to purchase a new home. All of them could not have been happier with his help. What about an exciting new career in real estate? Maybe you're finding you have more time on your hands than you would like to after retiring from your full-time job and are also looking to make some extra income. With flexible hours to still enjoy your free time and income that could be limitless, Mark could train you to be as successful as you would like to be and enjoy a rewarding career in real estate. For help with any of your real estate needs, as well as any information on a career in real estate, call my brother Mark Skatigna at Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. His number is 732-657-6200. That's 732-657-6200. Mark Skatigna, Coldwell Banker Flanagan Realty. Give him a call. You'll be happy you did. A recent NBC News poll uh, came out, uh, and uh, it's not looking good for uh, Joey there. Uh, it's looking horrible for him. Uh, and this was a poll made up of 36% Democrats, 38% Republican, and uh, 19% Independent. So a pretty fair poll. And the first question was, do you approve of the job Biden is doing as president? Approve, 37%. Disapprove, 58%. Uh, I don't recall ever seeing presidential numbers that low. Incredibly low. But how about this one? Do you approve the way Biden is handling the economy? Approve, 32%. Disapprove, 63%. I mean, how is it even possible uh, that Biden's even close in this race. And, and why is these numbers so bad on the economy? Well, inflation for necessities. I mean, everything is going up that we buy. Food, groceries, gasoline, heating oil. Uh, and people vote with their pocketbooks. And people aren't stupid. You could, the, the media can lie to you all day long. Corinne Jean-Pierre can come out tell you that Bidenomics is great, the economy is fantastic, all the jobs we created, but people know better. Do you approve of the way Biden is doing, dealing with foreign policy? Well, the numbers, bad again. Approve 31%, disapprove 60%. Well, that's no surprise with the chaos that we're seeing in the world. Ukraine, Ukraine, Middle East, Afghanistan, you can go on and on uh, what's going on in the world. We have chaos in today's world and the threat of World War III. Uh, People are a little concerned about that. 60% disapproval rating. If the election was held today, who would you vote for? Trump, 46%. Biden, 42%. Don't know, 12%. How is it even that close? I just gave you these numbers. Do you approve of the job that Biden's doing? He's only got 37% approval. Do you approve of the way he handles the economy? He's got 32% approval. Do you approve of the way he's doing foreign policy? 31% approval. But meanwhile, he's got 42% of the vote versus Trump. Uh, I believe all these questions up to the last one are accurate. Uh, The last one had to be fudged in some way. You can't answer those three questions 
and and still find out that you, it's that close. But Biden's in trouble. Again, I still don't believe he's going to be the candidate. Uh, it's just becoming more and more obvious. And now because of events in the world, he's got to come out and talk to the press. He's got to give press conferences and speeches. He can't go hide in the basement. And now we have an election year coming up. I don't think that strategy is going to work this time. Especially with numbers as poor as these. And that's why the White House is trying to bolster him up, sends him to Israel for a few hours, at which point he's embarrassed because the Arabs all canceled their meetings with him. He goes there and gives money to Iran and Hamas while he's in Jerusalem. The whole world sees this. Then he gave a speech, which was, I think, one of the worst presidential speeches ever. He never really once really mentioned the atrocities that happened to the Israeli people two weeks ago. All it was was a sales pitch to get more money, mainly for Ukraine. So now they're putting together a package where a $100 billion package for Ukraine, Israel, and something for the border. Who knows what that means? Probably just means more money for food, cell phones, housing, not border wall, not enforcing our immigration laws. And these are all wrapped up together. So now you can't vote against just one part of it. And 80 to 90% of that 100 billion is going to Ukraine. And most Americans don't want any more money going down that black hole. They want peace discussions. There's no way Ukraine survives this without World War III. I mean, we'd have to get so involved for them to survive, that we may not. And that's why uh, they they trotted him out, they bring him out to Israel, that backfired. Then they brought him out for that speech the other night. He must have spent two hours on the IV drip, because I was impressed, he got through it. He didn't stammer too much through it. So you got to give him credit, he didn't fall asleep during the middle of it. But all it was was a sales pitch for Congress, to put their differences aside, I know we're divided. Uh, he's the one who's divided us with everything he's doing. Uh, but, you know, we have to come together for this. Why not have three separate bills? And then we could decide what we want to vote on. Yeah, we want to vote for aid for Israel. Why does it have to be tied together with aid to Ukraine? Two separate issues. But that's the way they do it in Washington. Because now if you vote against it, as a Republican, because you don't want any more aid to Ukraine, well, then you voted against money for the border. You're an anti-Semite because you voted against aid to Israel. That's the way politics in Washington is played. When it makes sense to you or me just to have standalone bills for each issue. And then they can come out and run their ads next year that you were against border protection. When border protection was such a small part of that bill, and we don't even know what that means, so these, these poll numbers continue to go down, historically low levels. There's no way this man can win in a free and fair election anything, let alone President of the United States. And God help us if they are able to cheat enough and we got four more years of this guy. Or four more years of whoever replaces him. It doesn't really matter. We know there's one puppet master in this country. And his initials are, are B-H-O. 
Boy, I tell you, we live in really, really uh, interesting times, but very, very dangerous times. And it's pretty scary. And most Americans feel it. And we feel that we have a lack of leadership. The president is senile. He does what he's told. He reads off cards and teleprompters. Whoever's writing it, I'd like to know. I think I do. The second most powerful person in the country, the vice president. Our cackling vice president doesn't even know where she is half the time either. The most unqualified vice president we've ever had. A heartbeat away from being the leader of the free world in a time of potential nuclear war. World war. And then you have a dysfunctioning Congress. Both Democrats and Republicans. Now, the Republicans are in such disarray right now. You'd think they'd be jumping up and down trying to take advantage of the unpopularity of the president, the vice president, the economy, foreign policy. But they're in disarray. They can't, they can't decide on the speaker. Because we have 20, 25 Republicans that just hate Jim Jordan, hate conservatism, they're rhinos, they want to work with the Democrats in a coalition-type government, which is where this is going to go if they don't come to their senses and get a speaker. I don't care if it's McCarthy again. They got to get a speaker. But uh, government now is just the worst it's ever been in our country. And uh, today I'm recording this on Friday, at least this segment. And uh, the third vote for Speaker, uh, 25 voted against Jim Jordan. First it was 20, then it was 22, now it's 25. So he's losing support. And, uh, you know, it was a small band of Republicans that unseated McCarthy. So you could throw blame at them too. That how can a small group, you know, throw the whole caucus into disarray? But I tell you, they better get their stuff together quick. And they better uh, they better bring forth a speaker. And a speaker that's not a rhino. A speaker that's not part of the uniparty. And if they don't come together very soon, uh, the Republicans are going to lose. We're going to lose again. We're going to lose the Congress. Probably the presidency. And there's an opportunity right now for the Republicans to come together, take advantage of of the disastrous policies of the Biden administration and take full control of government next November. But they're too busy in fighting with each other. Right, let's review financial markets for last week. I mean, the stock market is in a significant correction right now. It's been a few weeks now we've seen stock prices for the weeks down. And after a great, great start to the year, uh, we're seeing stock prices retreat. And this is the beginning of something bigger? I think so. I really do. Uh, Dow Jones for the week was down 1.61%. Year to date now, the Dow is down a fraction, 0.06%. So all the gains that the Dow had have been ev- evaporated the last couple of months. S&P 500 for the week was down 2.39%. Still holding a relatively healthy gain of 10% for the year. But it was up somewhere around 17%. Uh, at its high. NASDAQ was down 3.6% for the week. It, it goes up the most and it comes down the most because it has so many of the big tech stocks in that index, but still up uh, a robust 24.05% for the year. But I think the high was somewhere like 34% for 
So it's given back 10%. Uh, and the question is, uh, is there more to come? And I think so. Uh, 10-year Treasury bond yields hit 5% last week, closed at 4.93%. Uh, that's real important because um, bond rates affect mortgage rates. It affects other interest rates in the economy. Uh, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage hit a new high of 7.57%. Looks like it's on its way to 8 maybe greater. Uh, and the housing market, it came out this week that existing home sales fell to a 15-year low. As people don't want to sell their house, they don't want to give up their 3% mortgage to go buy a new house with 7.6%. Makes no sense to do that. So you have no supply in the market. And you have first-time home buyers not being able to afford the exorbitant prices of the homes, add to it the expense of financing. They're just priced out of the market right now. And when you don't have first-time home buyers coming in, people can't trade up. And we have a frozen real estate market right now. And it looks like it is going to be frozen until interest rates start coming down. And it's not going to happen anytime soon. And I truly do believe that we're going to see a housing crash next year. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. As the economy slows, more people lose their jobs. Uh, it's going to significantly affect the housing market. But right now, the market's frozen. Prices aren't coming down, but nobody's selling them. As indicated by the economic news that comes out that we have existing home sales at a 15-year low. Uh, gold and silver Quote a bid the last couple of weeks. Gold's up to almost 2,000 an ounce. 1981, it closed on Friday. Silver, 2335. Uh, still low, but up from 21 just a couple of weeks ago. So why is gold going up? Well, geopolitical concerns. You know, what's going on in the Middle East? What's going on in Ukraine? And uh, historically, gold and silver are a safe haven. And we're seeing money come into it. I think both are incredibly undervalued. Bitcoin's been rising lately. Uh, 30,000 on Bitcoin this morning while I'm recording this on Saturday morning. Uh, so Bitcoin's hanging in there. And I think it's also being looked at as an alternative currency to the U.S. dollar. So that's financial markets for last week. Market is in correction mode. Uh, and uh, we'll continue to report what's going on here on the financial position. And as I laid out on the program earlier, uh, it's time to be conservative, really. I mean, we're living in extremely volatile times. You know, I'm afraid if we're going to wake up, the first thing I do is turn my computer on to see what the headlines are. Uh, but it's um, it's really a dangerous place right now, the world. And it's not a time to be speculating. It's not a time to have a lot of money in, these, in the financial markets, especially the stock market. And it's time to get protective because I think a really significant financial event is ahead of us. One of our listeners uh, sent me a video clip of Donald Trump six years ago, just when he became president, talking to an international government group. It was mixed with Arabs in there, and it must be some kind of global conference or something like that. I'm not sure what it is. It doesn't really matter. And he's talking about a terrorist incident that happened and terrorism in general. And I don't think I've ever heard President Trump speak so eloquently to this subject compared to what we're hearing from our current president. There can be no coexistence with this violence. There can be no tolerating it, no accepting it, no excusing it, and no ignoring it. Every time a terrorist murders an innocent person and falsely invokes the name of God, it should be an insult 
to every person of faith. Terrorists do not worship God. They worship death. If we do not act against this organized terror, then we know what will happen and what will be the end result. Terrorism's devastation of life will continue to spread. Peaceful societies will become engulfed by violence. And the futures of many generations will be sadly squandered. If we do not stand in uniform condemnation of this killing, then not only will we be judged by our people, not only will we be judged by history, but we will be judged by God. Wow, that was pretty powerful. Uh, I've never heard, saw or heard that clip. But it's funny, Luke, to see the, the faces of the, the dignitaries from the Arab countries <laughs> as he's speaking this uh, about terrorism and God. Uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting to watch, but it, it was really, really moving. Compare that to the current president who uh, was in Israel for eight hours and had a press conference with Netanyahu, and he's got his cards, and he's feeble, and he's talking about Blinken being in the Senate with him, which never even happened. Uh, just let's compare those two clips. You know, uh, years ago, I asked the Secretary of State, but he and I were working in the Senate to write something for a man. said, uh, you know, a line that uh, I think is appropriate. He said, uh, it's not we need... Uh, so after uh, joining uh, the many, many, many U.S. corporations that are woke, uh, Victoria's Secret finally got some religion and are going back to being sexy as opposed to uh, uh, aiming at sales towards transgender and obese people, uh, Americans didn't like it. And uh, they saw a tremendous drop in sales when they went in that direction. And the president of the company, CEO, on an investor call said, despite everybody's best endeavors, its woke initiatives have not been enough to carry the day. Um, So the company said, while the move to push LGBTQ identities was favored by critics. Yeah, what critics? It didn't equal better sales. No crap. <laughs> the brand is projecting revenue of $6.2 billion this year, which is down 5% from the previous year and 15% from 2020. So over the past two years, Victoria's Secret ditched its glitzy annual Victoria's Secret fashion show that I kind of enjoyed, by the way. You know, they had these very sexualized ad campaigns with VS angel models that made people famous like Giselle Budichin, Tom Brady's wife, can never say her name right, Heidi Klum, Adriana Lemus. They all became famous being a model for Victoria's Secret. So instead, it said the company would push for a more inclusive lingerie campaign featuring liberal actress, soccer star Megan Rapinoe. You know her, right? Um, trans-identifying model Valentina Sampeo, plus-size models, and others. In 2021, uh, activist Rapinoe 
called out the company, claiming that before its woke push, the company had sent out a really harmful message that was patriarchal, sexist, viewing not just what it meant to be sexy, but what clothes were trying to accomplish through a male lens and through what men desired. And it was marked, uh, very much marketed toward younger women. Oh, what a revelation. Well, why wouldn't it be marketed to younger women? It's sexy lingerie, for God's sakes. That was manufactured and marketed to appeal to men. That's the product. People have gone insane in this country. It's really really insane. All right, let's end the show with uh, a story I was trying to get to the last couple of weeks. I just didn't get to it. And I'll leave you with uh, boiling blood. Let's put it that way, because it makes my blood boil. Um, Just like New York, Illinois is struggling to uh, house all these illegal immigrants flooding into the state. Uh, O'Hare Airport in Chicago has been used to house some. Imagine that. You're trying to take a plane somewhere, and you got homeless all over the airport. So what Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, a Democrat, of course, uh, he wants to use rental assistance funds, rental assistance funds meant for Americans to house illegal border crosses. The Illinois Rental Payment Program was set up to allocate up to 25000 a year to individuals struggling to pay their housing. In 2022, the Pritzker administration proudly noted that $1 billion in state taxes had been pumped into the program to help people struggling after the coronavirus pandemic. When asked this month about his plans to pay for the increasing cost of housing caused by illegal aliens pouring into the state, thanks to Joe Biden's mounting border crisis, Pritzker said that he had been raiding the funds already allocated for other state programs meant to benefit citizens, programs including the Rental Assistance Fund. We have taken some of the programs that have pre-existed the crisis and adjusted them to help with the immigration crisis. Let let me give you an example. Our rental assistance program. We have provided some of that rental assistance money, which wasn't originally intended to be used for asylum seekers, for this challenge. The city of Chicago is supposedly at a breaking point. So uh, how do you feel about that? Taking Americans' money meant to help Americans, poor Americans, with rental assistance being diverted to illegals. Can't make this stuff up, people. It really is nuts. But that's the way it is in Illinois, thanks to another Democratic left-wing governor. That'll do it for today's Financial Physician. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember, the Wednesday podcast comes up about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We talk about different subjects on our Wednesday podcast. If you want to get in touch with me, my email address is lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Please share this podcast with friends and family. Let's get the word out there. If you want to join me for a complimentary one-hour financial review at my office, just give my office a call at 732-905-8100, 732-905-8100. See you Wednesday, and don't forget, I'm not far right. I'm just right so far. <laughs>